Hello and welcome to this a special episode of Too Long Don't Listen. My name is Sean Peterbudge and I'm here to have a chat somewhat belatedly about the book of Boba Fett, season one, episode one, Stranger in a Strange Land, which obviously launched on Disney Plus on Wednesday night for us here in Australia. Um, it was something I'd sort of thought about doing maybe on the Wednesday night, Thursday, we're Friday at the moment, and I thought, oh, I don't know, or maybe eh, could do, eh, yeah. And then a good friend of the pod, good supporter of the pod, one of the OGs, Jimmy Faz. Shout out to Jimmy. Uh, you're probably listening. Uh, contacted me last night and asked if I'd be doing any sort of special chats or records about the book of Boba Fett. And to be honest with you, now that I think about it, this could probably just be a phone call between me and Jimmy Faz. Jimmy Faz rings me at 8.30 on a Wednesday and we just go over the episode together. Instead, I've decided to do this, and maybe some people will listen. If you do listen, thank you so much. Um, if you've got some thoughts or feedback, do not hesitate to get in touch with me. I'd love to hear from you, um, what you're enjoying about the show, both the episode and what I'm doing here, um, where you hope the show goes, etc., etc. any theories. It's always fun to kind of unpack them as they unfold. Um, so we'll get straight into it. Obviously, episode one of The Book of Boba Fett, uh, picks up where the end credit scene of the Mandalorian Season 2 left off, with Boba Fett having reclaimed his armour and his ship. He's returned to Tatooine to step into the power vacuum left by the death of Jabba the Hutt. And alongside his lieutenant, the bounty hunter Fennec Shand, Fett seeks to rebuild Jabba's crime empire and reintroduce himself to a criminal underworld that has grown comfortable in the absence of a kingpin. Interspersed with present-day action is a series of flashback sequences that finally show how he survived with his <coughs> how he survived sorry his brush with the Sarlacc in Return of the Jedi and has hinted at what happened between the events of Return of the Jedi and his return in season technically season 1 but more you know pointedly season 2 of the Mandalorian so that's the basic overview of episode 1 of the book of Boba Fett and I suppose first episodes, no matter how familiar we are with a character or a world or, or anything like that, first episodes of a series are always a thankless task. You know, some of the best <coughs> shows ever, if you think about some of your favourite shows, have probably got pretty bad pilots or first episodes, depending on how their release is structured. But they can be pretty ho-hum. They can be pretty bad as well. So, I mean, this is pretty all right it's it's not fantastic it's not it's not awful um it's probably on the right side of yeah it's good um which is a good start you know all the stuff that we've come to expect of star wars in the past <coughs> is absolutely here absolutely on show for good bad or other got your callbacks got your easter eggs you got your fan service and that all bothers you as much as you let it it's it's here to stay. It's what Disney's business is, not just in Star Wars, but you think about anything they're making, a lot of meta stuff going into all their properties now, all their remakes, a lot of writing perceived wrongs in representation or narrative or, you know, all that kind of stuff, um, for better or worse. It's, it's what Disney do, um, particularly at this point in time. They have monetized nostalgia to such an extent and in such a way, it's not going away. So don't be bothered if we walk into it, we're going to talk about it, but we walk into a casino in Los Espar, and Max Rebo's there, and they're playing Mad About Me, which is the, the classic Cantina Band song 
from um, A New Hope. So, I mean, it's it's just a little moment that's you're not meant to think about any more than, huh, that's, that's nice. Yeah, I mean, people I've seen online or how did Max Rebo survive the Jabber's barge getting blown? I don't care. Is it really that important how Max Rebo survived? He just got off the ship. Yeah, I don't know. He, he was thrown from the blast. As Luke was cutting people in half, he thought, I'm getting out of here. And he packed up his keyboard or whatever the hell he has and got off. There. We don't need a comic or a book or anything to explain it. It's just a little moment that you're meant to go, oh, there he is. That's a bit of fun. And for most people who, do, who are just casual fans, they wouldn't even notice. They wouldn't even care. So with that out of the way, I think what's a really interesting part of where, you know, streaming um, and then and more recently Disney Plus have taken sort of lounge room or at-home media, TV media, one of the big advancements in the last sort of 10-odd years leading up to now Disney certainly didn't invent this. They're just now taking the baton and going to another level with it. Is the gap between what we're given on a TV show, quote-unquote, and what we see at the cinema is shrinking rapidly. You know, HBO really started it, but HBO started it in kind of a... in probably more... the more thematic way, not, not so much a technical way, but more good actors great scripts, great performances, great direction, all that kind of stuff. It was just things that TV traditionally, because of many, many restraints, technologically, you know, time, turnaround, access, you know, to those top-tier acting talents, they just didn't have the money to kind of do it. But HBO sort of turned the wheel and famously with stuff like, you know, The Sopranos and then AMC did it with Mad Men and, and so it continues on and on. There's lots and lots of examples but with stuff like, and once again, there's, there's more examples than just the one I'm going to use, with stuff like Game of Thrones, that production side of things really, really took a leap forward. So much so in the last couple of seasons, like episodes of Game of Thrones were costing more money than quite a lot of independent films. Now, to be honest, this is probably as much a consequence of digital filmmaking because... It was so costly. I mean, to shoot on film, so many elements of that process are so costly. The film is expensive. Setting everything up is expensive. Processing is expensive. TV used to just shoot on digital tape, which is why your neighbours and your... um, I was going to say Home Alone, Home and Away, they have a certain look about them. They look like TV. Even network TV, like primetime, it looks like TV because it's all shot on a very cost-effective method, whereas now... They're all shot digital. I spoke about this in the last episode about The Matrix, um, but it's so easy to have your TV show look like a movie. There was always event television, miniseries and and the like, which were very popular and could get big-name actors to do a three- or a four-episode miniseries, which was effectively maybe two movies. That was always had its place. But in the last little bit, now really reaching a kind of... Zenith with, with what Disney Plus are doing and a few other shows. And networks, sorry, you know, Amazon's are doing a great job with it, Netflix, obviously. What we're starting to get is the, is the quality, the margin, is nearly non-existent. That obviously has a lot of things to say about the way people are consuming media, not so much the way 
uh, these companies can produce now, but what's available to these um, studios, producers and the like is meaning that we're getting things on TV which don't threaten cinema as such because you're always going to have the movie-going experience, but it's actually quite important and quite a significant reason why people's tastes have changed because you used to watch something on TV and it was pretty hokey, it was pretty small time, it was pretty slapdash, but it was effective in what it was trying to do. If you wanted the big experience and the big production and the picture quality and the sound quality and the mixing and all that, you had to go to the movies. Whereas now you just sit at home on the couch on your nice big TV and you watch these things that are produced so well that, as I keep saying, the, the, the gap is just it is shrinking fast, really fast. And for something like Star Wars, you know, at its core, it was always character-driven. It wasn't entirely spectacle-driven. It had absolutely plenty of the latter, make no mistake. But that philosophy, when done right, characters at the heart of the stories you're telling, audiences relating to those characters and wanting to see more of their adventures and their trials, wanting to know more about them, that really lends itself so brilliantly well to the longer-form TV format. You get longer runtimes, you get a more intimate scale. You can really crack into and explore individuals, their relationships with one another, their growth, all that kind of stuff. And in a weird way, I do, with something like Star Wars, which once upon a time principally and exclusively, let's say, it's not a TV show? What? Has No. Come on. You look down your nose. You're like, oh, it's not a TV show. I often find myself having to remind myself, we have to readjust to that. It's going to be smaller. It's going to be slower. It's going to be more character-driven. So give it time. That doesn't excuse certain, whether it be Marvel shows in this case, stuff like The Mandalorian, and maybe what we're going to see with with Boba Fett, it doesn't excuse them for sometimes testing our patience a bit. I think they have been guilty of some real pacing problems. Um, However, generally speaking, there's more story, or there should be more story, which is good. There should be more character development, which is good. There should be more opportunity to let, you know, major beats breathe, which is good. You've obviously got all, you know, the people making the shows have to bring this all together. So ultimately, I think we've sort of got to talk generally about, like, Boba Fett, the character, and why this guy that was just introduced as a kind of, geez, what was it? He was like a third or fourth antagonist in The Empire Strikes Back had such a lasting impression on, on pop culture. He was introduced in the in a segment in uh, the holiday special in 1978, and he had, he looked like a cool stormtrooper. You know, he looked like at one point he might have been the baddest stormtrooper or the leader of the stormtroopers and ends up becoming his own thing. And Joe Johnston, who, who's gone on to direct um, lots of different things, The Rocketeer, probably most notably did uh, Jurassic Park 3, but uh, he, he was a, like a concept designer and an artist on The Empire Strikes Back and is often credited with sort of creating Boba Fett, the character that we know. Um, he ends up becoming just 
one of many bounty hunters in a galaxy replete with them who has a role to play in this story before being kind of, uh, I think, in fairness, pretty haphazardly killed off. He probably should have had more of a role to play than what we saw in the movies. But as a lot of these Star Wars characters do, based on a look and a vibe, he took on a life of his own. So my sort of question throughout Boba Fett's um, time in pop culture, has he been paid enough respect, like (laughs) evening it out over the 41 years or 43 years he's been in pop culture, has he been paid the right amount of respect initially and for probably a while? No. Sorry, no, too much, sorry. I'm confused myself. Initially and probably for quite a while, he's probably been given far too much respect for what he represents and what he gives the series and how integral he is. And then you think about lately, and you're like, probably not quite enough. You know, I don't need or want him to be Superman. That's not interesting, an invulnerable character, like a God-level character. But at the moment, the shows that have kind of reintroduced him haven't done a great deal to kind of underline his reputation. Like, at the moment since he's been reintroduced into the canon, he hasn't really done anything to stress to us that he's worthy of this reputation he has as a badass. But maybe that's in keeping with his introduction. He was just one of eight bounty hunters enlisted to find Han and Leia, and he was smart enough to, you know, roll the dice and pick how Han might escape. And he was able to follow him and sort of trap him and... Um, you know, set up the, the final act of Empire. Actually, interestingly, I've always thought that when they did a young Han Solo film, I always thought that they made the wrong movie. Like, that film is fine. Like, it's totally fine. It's not great. It's, it's okay. But do, like, an Oceans-style sort of heist or, like, a Dirty Dozen-style, you know, Magnificent Seven-type thing with, like, Han, maybe, like, a Greedo, Boba Fett and some of, like, Jabba the Hutt's contractors, you know, doing some kind of job together. You know, Han's the pilot, Boba's the muscle, etc. Like, and you kind of thought, they probably should have done it as a TV show, to be honest. Like, they probably should have. But they made the movie, and they probably made the wrong movie, and it just didn't quite happen for them. But you watch something like this, and you're like, these characters have obviously got a bit of a relationship, you know, throughout the course of the canon. Greedo obviously knows Han. Boba Fett works with Jabba. Jabba knows Han. That's the link. Can kind of like bring that all together and kind of have a bit of fun with, well, of course Boba Fett knows what Han's going to do because they know him. You know, they have a respect for each other. They fear each other. They've done jobs together, etc., etc. But interestingly, and this is where it all comes full circle, that's what I've said before is not so much a criticism because... I think what the show did a really good job of is kind of showing us that he's battered and he's bruised, not just sort of physically, but mentally. You know, he's, he's got a lot of skeletons. He obviously witnessed his, his clone, for one, so he's actually not. Yes, he is a human being in so much the Star Wars universe definition, but he was a clone of another man. That guy was his father, but he's not really his father. You watched him get killed. He's been sort of disparate and wandering the galaxy ever since. Um, he spends some time in the stomach of a sand beast. Um, by the time he eventually gets out, he put through the ringer, really, and the episode does a good job of kind of showing us what has happened in that time. 
without really labouring the point, and I think that's quite interesting. But I think that, you know, he's just physically he's worse for wear, and he's probably just down on a bit of confidence. So what I hope happens, and I'm fingers crossed, what I hope happens is, as the series progresses, he just needs to be a bit more clinical and unflappable, you know, when the guns come out and he's in a gun fight. He needs to be not a superhero. He doesn't need to be, you know, invulnerable. But he needs to be a bit closer to the Boba Fett we probably all want him to be. I'm sure he will get to that point. But he just probably needs to not get knocked down so often. You know, so hopefully that's what what happens as the season progresses. Um, another thing that I find really interesting about the just the character at the moment where we find him is, I think they have to address his age. So, for for people who aren't familiar, the years or the timeline in Star Wars is is often determined by an event's proximity to the Death Star being destroyed in A New Hope. So that's an event referred to as the Battle of Yavin. So events are either before the Battle of Yavin or after the Battle of Yavin. So in um, the case of the prequels, for instance, The Phantom Menace takes place 32 years before the Battle of Yavin. Anakin's nine years old, so by the time of Return of the Jedi, he ends up being, what's at 41, 45. Return of the Jedi is four years after the Battle of Yavin, Empire, I think, is three years. The Mandalorian season one, I think, was nine years after Return um, after A New Hope, so five years after Return of the Jedi. Sorry if I'm confusing anyone. I think Attack of the Clones would be 22 years before A New Hope, and Revenge of the Sith was 18 years. So Boba Fett was an unaltered clone of Jango Fett, created around the time of the Phantom Menace, so 32 years before the Battle of Yavin. Ten years later, he's, he's a 10-year-old boy, so then obviously 32 come A New Hope. Um, what was that, 36? He's like 41. He's like 41, 42 in this series. He is worse for wear. Like, Temuara Morrison's a fucking pretty well-preserved dude. He's like 60-odd. It's a big difference between being 60-odd and being, like, 41. Maybe this is something the show will sort of um, sort of a, uh, have a look at or maybe something the show will address in that he's ageing quickly, the cloning process is breaking down a little bit, he was one of the first clones produced, and since then they've figured out how to properly slow the ageing. He's actually ageing two-thirds, or, you know, a third quicker type thing. He's ageing at 133% against a normal timeline, et cetera, et cetera. That would be something to kind of have a look at because, like I said, like it's not it doesn't, it's not so bad that it takes you out of the show. It's not so jarring because most people wouldn't know how old this guy meant to be. And in a lot of ways, actually, as I sort of just think about this as I'm saying it, they might not even worry because one of the really funny things about sort of like Star Wars is that and I've seen, um, I've seen Dave Filoni, I think, who's a producer on this, obviously producer on, on Mandalorian, creator of um, Rebels and the like. He, he'd spoken before about how George Lucas has got this really interesting perspective on, like, age. So you think about in A New Hope, Luke is 18, so that would make him 22 
in Jedi, but he's a lot more mature than that. He's like played or presented as being like late twenties, in much the same way that Anakin and Padme are nine and fourteen or in Phantom Menace. But it kind of doesn't matter. Like the age, it's a funny thing. It's a funny perspective or representation that age is sort of irrelevant. Don't think about it too much. Just don't. That shouldn't be a determining factor in how mature, how capable, how vulnerable, how how old, whatever you you perceive a character to be. The age is actually don't don't sort of stress about it. Don't get bogged down in. Well, he's this old, so that means he should look like this. So maybe I've spoken too quickly. I've talked myself out of it. But at the same time, I would find it interesting if they kind of went back and tactfully, out of respect to Tim Noir Morrison, maybe kind of been like, look, he's a little bit older than maybe he should be because the genome's breaking down a bit because he was a first-gen clone and first-gen clones were aging quickly, blah, 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 blah. That would be an interesting attitude as to why he's in the back to tank, why he's in need of running repairs, why he's a little bit more broken not just because of his experiences, he's a little bit more broken than maybe we expected him to be at this stage of his life. Because like I said, based on the timeline, he's like 41 or 42 years old. So maybe I've spoken, I've talked myself back around whilst also giving myself an out. It's a good chat. Um, I think, just what am I up to here? Chicken salads, I believe. Chicken salads. Uh, and look, there's actually quite a lot from the first episode. I think it was a, a decent enough start. And one of the things that I really liked, um, speaking of characterization of Boba Fett, was that he's presented as a man of honour, which is, I think, quite like important. I, I always thought, not just before Mandalorian, but I thought, oh, if they bring him back, it's kind of inevitable they'll bring him back because they've done it in comics. And But I was like, oh, he'd probably skew too close to being like a really grizzled anti-hero. He'd be a, he'd be more of a kind of a bad guy, um, but his reintroduction into the series is and the law has kind of stressed that he's actually like a good dude. You know, we've seen examples of him in Mandalorian, like again being a good dude. We offered uh, he offered to help the um, the uh, the Rhodesian prisoner who was with him in the Tuscan camp in in episode one, which was uh, important. As he mounts his escape from the Tuscan camp, he doesn't kill. I've just drawn a blank on what their little pet is. It's frustrating, but he doesn't kill the animal and when he disarms the Tuscan Raider trying to sort of apprehend him, he doesn't hurt them, he doesn't strike them, he doesn't attempt to kill them. He, he sort of looks at them and they kind of look at him like, I was expecting anger, I was expecting violence. And from this guy of all guys, he doesn't. He refrains from that. Yes, he defends himself in the sort of the Jaffe fight a bit later on, but... Ultimately, you know, I think we're starting to see too, he, he fights the, I saw someone refer to the creature he fights later in the sand as the, the sand Goro from, you know, Mortal Kombat, which was quite funny, but he fights that, he defends the Tuscan that's with him, so eventually when he's brought back into the camp, you can kind of see where this is going, it's really nice, like he's, he's taken in by the tribe and taken in by the chief and obviously wins their respect and kind of ultimately becomes one of them. It's a really cool sort of example of show, don't tell. You know, let's show me storytelling, don't tell me, show me. And there's now a little bit of a catalogue building of examples of this guy living 
this I want people to respect me is mine in the trailer. Jabber ruled by fear. I want to rule by respect. He'll throw down when and if he needs to. But he actually conducts himself with great respect, which is, I think, a cool sort of way to frame him, um, you know, not to be taken ad- advantage of, but at the same time respected. And there's this nice, as I said, catalogue of examples growing both in Mandalorian and now episode one of the Book of Boba Fett. Um, I spoke about the look of the show, and it certainly now looks good, as most event TV does nowadays. One thing I did find interesting was the um, the warping and distortion of the frame, and it's an interesting conversation to have. I was sitting there thinking, is this a stylistic choice by you know the showrunners, producers, and in this case potentially Robert Rodriguez who directed episode one, or is it a limitation? of the volume, the digital LED soundstage that I'd spoken of in the um, in the last episode about um, Matrix. But is it a limitation of kind of bringing some of those larger locations to life is that the volume itself at the moment is only however big. So the limitation of broader sets is that you have to shoot it at a wider focal um, length the consequence of that is you get warping of the shot, particularly in, in pans. So you notice that um, it happened in, in one of the in initial establishing shots of Jabba's Palace. It happened once we were in an interior at Jabba's Palace. They did a pan across the, the throne room area. And this the, the sides of the frame kind of warp because we're, we're obviously very wide. You know, we're probably... Geez, are we, you know, probably in that kind of like 12 to maybe 16 millimetre range to get more information in the shot and obviously the consequence of that is that the frame bows a bit so and vignettes on the on the edges it gets a bit dark on the edge so to me yeah it was it was an interesting thing to kind of observe to go is this just a choice you've made to shoot it like this or is it a compromise you've made that you've had to shoot it like this because you know as i said limitations on the on the set so that'll be something to look out for is not doesn't make the show better or worse. It's just maybe a technical thing to look out for in future episodes. Um, I really like what John Favreau's kind of brought to these TV properties. He's, a, he's recognised quite well how to synthesise classic Star Wars out of a complementary genre. So, you know, the, the original Star Wars, they were space westerns, so The Mandalorian is probably a really true, really obvious... Um, representation of that trope, the Western trope, stranger comes to town and all that kind of stuff, which is which is really good fun. And then this one is kind of shaping up. If the trailers are any guide, and if this first episode's any guide, as like a crime, like a gangster mafia film. You know, you've got Boba Fett returning to town to try to take back the the throne of this crime syndicate, which is not in disarray, but you know, warring families or factions are squabbling over interests you know across Tatooine and potentially you know the galaxy nearby and the planets nearby and Jabba has obviously ruled with an iron fist and had it all under control but in the years since his death it's dissolved it's weakened and here Boba Fett is trying to kind of sort of reunite all those different pieces that formed the old empire that was Jabba the Hutts and it's this fun kind of as I said mafia sort of throwback my my mind was actually drawn to um American Gangster, the Ridley Scott film starring Denzel Washington. You know, when, when I think it's Bumpy, was his, the boss of Harlem dies. And 
Frank, played by Denzel, is sort of initially going, well, I'm next in line, I'm going to step up to the plate and I'm going to step into the void left by, by Bumpy. But no, there's there's competing interests and there's other people who think they might want to do that and take a bigger slice than they had under Jabber. And it creates these cool kind of dynamics. There's obviously, from looks of the trailer, a bit of a meeting of the, the five families from you know, Godfather coming up in the next episode or two. Um, and even so much as one of the very first... Uh, scenes in in the first episode of this is uh, locals coming to pay tribute to the new crime boss a little bit like um, you know the Godfather when they're visiting Vito on at uh, Connie's wedding. So again, that's fun. The genres probably my biggest highlight of the episode. Don't know why I didn't lead with this. Um, Tuscan Raiders. So the first episode of season two of Mandalorian was really noticeable for showing us a few different things. We've got the crate dragon, which was cool. Um, really cut uh, June's lunch. We got a a more remote part of Tatooine, you know, sort of stressing the lawless frontier um, that the planet represents. And we got a really unique look at Tusken Raider culture where they teamed up with this local band of Tusken Raiders to kind of, you know, defeat the Krayt Dragon and help them out and get them the pearl. And here again, it takes that idea further. You know, we, we see that Boba Fett's entrenched in the camp, we get a little bit more of a hierarchical look at you know the structure of, of Tuscan society, the chief. It was it's really good. Like it's really fun. These characters that were introduced as a you no, know, just but a minor kind of inconvenience slash threat in uh, in a New Hope. You know this kind of band of lawless goons that out in the desert, if you're not careful, will um, will hurt you. No, but they've got their own culture. And it would very seldom hint at that. You know, now in the last year and a bit, we're starting to see a lot more of it on screen and it and enriches, you know, now when you go back and watch those old movies, you know so much more about them. So that's quite cool. And that's, you know, I spoke about you can tell any story you want with regard to The Matrix and making sequels. Make sequels to whatever you want. Just tell us something new. Show us something new. You know, enrich an old element of the story. Add to it. And that's what they've done you know, Favreau and, and others with, like I said, episodes of Mandalorian and now the first episode of this. And this will obviously build because um, as, I think, I think it was season one of Mandalorian, Boba's reintroduction was, well, he's wearing this strange desert garb. Well, he's obviously been taken in by the Tuscan camp and that particular tribe and, and sort of won a place in their hierarchy um, and been living with them for however long, a couple of years. So that'll be good to see play out. I'm sure we'll see more of that. Um, I mentioned earlier Max Rebo. It was cool to kind of see them in the little casino sequence playing all the hits um, and the Cuban lounge sort of style rendition of Mad About Me um, was a bit of a, huh. And again, that's all it has to be. A bit of fun. They're just a little cover band. They're just playing their little songs. That's their best known song. They're still playing it. Good on them. Um, geographically, it was nice to see a different look or a cool look at, like, Mos Espa, which is where Watto and Anakin were based in The Phantom Menace. Um, you know, we got to see it as this, this, like, plateau city in a way, like this sprawling sort of quasi-metropolis, which was quite cool. And again, if we're going to keep going back to Tatooine, show us different parts of it. Don't just go back to the cantina. Don't just go back to the homestead, which they kind of hinted at um, in uh, in this last one, in our first episode. Don't just keep going back there. Don't just keep showing us the same places we've already been. 
So you walked out of this with Moss Esper and you went, oh, that's pretty cool. You got, got to see a bit of Main Street, sort of a different part of the city, got the big establishing shot of it, which was cool. Looked a bit like Jeddah um, from Rogue One, which was nice. But it just tells us more. It shows us more. It's really nice. Um, and then just with the flashbacks too, it was sort of cool that they, we got a little bit of a glimpse of even Camino, which, as established in the Bad Batch, um, I think the city was called like Topoka City, which is which, which where, where the, the Kaminoans are, are based and the clones were built and the facility was and where um, Boba would have lived the first 10 odd years of his life. Um, in the Bad Batch, which takes place Revenge of the Sith time, so what, 18 years um, before the Battle of Yavin, which places it like, what, 28 years before this, that city was sort of destroyed and sent back into the ocean. Interestingly, Fennec Shand, who's Boba Fett's, like, right-hand woman, um, she killed Ton Wee, who um, had a bit of a role in Attack of the Clones. That's probably not going to be touched on, but it's just an interesting little Easter egg. But it was nice to kind of get a glimpse of this guy's we hope we see more of this guy's life and this guy's development and this guy, you know, has a few skeletons in his closet. He's not just a one-dimensional, you know, action figure. Um, we can actually really explore what he's been through and what it's done to him and how it's made him the person that he is, good, bad, and otherwise, which would be interesting. But it was just nice, as I said, to get that quick flash of Camino. We got a, you know, a brief little look sort of out the window at the old Slave One. Um, so in the end, I mean, just to, to wrap things up, not a bad start. I think overall I'd give it a B uh, grade. I think it was I think it was a, a solid start, a positive start. Um, showed us a lot of cool things that, you know, we hadn't seen before or that maybe were hinted at, solidified in canon, certain other important aspects that have been long spoken about and rumoured with regard to the character. Um, so in the end, just as a starting point for this series, um, good positive, thumbs up, um, give it a B, uh, already obviously looking forward to episode two, which will be out at sort of near enough to seven o'clock uh, local time for us next Wednesday night. Um, just in closing, as I said off the top, if you are watching the show, enjoying it, not enjoying it, thoughts, theories, definitely get in touch. Um, if you sort of enjoy this kind of breakdown or conversation about the show let me know because I'll, I'll do another one for for episode two next week um look out for the weekly watch list we'll be doing you know another episode in the next couple of weeks touching base uh, with will about all the things we've watched and enjoyed um since we last recorded um so yeah thanks so much for tuning in um we'll speak to you soon